as we do that, let's grab our Bibles, our phones, our devices, and turn to Luke chapter 7. We'll be in Luke chapter 7 today as we dig into the Word together. Here at Meadowbrook Church, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus. Wherever you are at in your spiritual journey, we want to help you take your next steps. We are understanding that there is a process of growing and maturing and learning in the Lord. We are all on this journey together, and we as a church want to be a part of that with you. We want to help you take those next steps. So whether you are new to Jesus, whether you've walked with Jesus for a long time, whether you're not even sure about Jesus and you're just here checking him out, wherever you're at, we want to help you take those next steps. We focus on that primarily in three ways, upward, inward, and outward. We want to take our next steps upwardly in our connection, our knowledge, our communion with him. We want to take our next steps inwardly as God does his work in us, transforms us to make us more like Jesus. And we want to take our next steps outwardly as we engage with the world around us, as we engage with other people as we live out this faith outwardly. So we are always looking to frame things in those views. We started a new series a couple of weeks ago that we've simply called Jesus and the Sinners. And when we talk about sinners, we're talking about you and me, right? There is nobody who doesn't have sin in their lives. But we're going to be looking at just key stories where Jesus engages with different people in their sin that we find in the Gospels. And we're just wanting to learn from that about Jesus. We're wanting to grow in him and understand him more. We're wanting to learn what that means for our sin. We're we're wanting to learn what that means for other people's sin when we see people in sin around us. And so what does it mean for all of us as we are growing up together in Christ together? So there's a few premises that have been guiding us throughout the series that we started, we looked at in week one. Number one, Jesus calls us to follow him and his ways. If we're going to call ourselves Christ followers, 1 John 2, 6 says, then we actually have to follow Christ. So Jesus is always our example that we are seeking to emulate, including how he engaged with people, including in his attitude towards sin. Jesus' engagement with sinners makes some religious people uncomfortable. There were people who thought in his day that Jesus was too friendly with sinners. He was too soft on sin. He wasn't coming in like maybe they thought a prophet should, you know, with a lot of judgment and condemnation right off the bat. So there was something about the way Jesus connected with sinners that made some religious people uncomfortable. Jesus calls sin what it is, and he calls us away from it. So he is not actually soft on sin. He has, there is a standard in God's word. There is a holiness that we are shooting for. And so Jesus has no problem calling sin, sin, and calling us away from it. And when we talk about sin, we're not talking about a God who is trying to just kind of ruin our fun or mess things up. We believe that sin is actually bad for us, and God, because he loves us, calls us to a better way, that there is a purer way that is actually better for us, and we're wanting to find that way. We see that Jesus is both holy and merciful. He somehow is able to walk that path without compromising either side. He is incredibly loving and merciful and compassionate. He is also perfect and holy at the same time, and he doesn't sacrifice one for the other. He finds that sweet spot in the middle. And then finally, Jesus meets people exactly where they are. He does not uh, typically want any of us to stay where we are. We are moving forward and going deeper with him, but he meets people where they are. There isn't, you have to jump through 47 hoops before you're allowed to talk to Jesus. You have to clean yourself up to a certain point before you can engage with him. Jesus meets people exactly where they are. So I want you to think about a time as we get going where you got busted doing something bad. Maybe it was in childhood. Maybe it was with your parents. Maybe it was with a teacher. Maybe it was literally with a police officer. But a time when you got caught legitimately doing something wrong. You screwed up and it came out. 
And it's a kind of an uncomfortable feeling, right? That's not a fun thing to dwell on. But think about a significant time in your life when you legitimately did something wrong and it came out. It was exposed. Your parents caught you or they were disciplining you. You got called to the principal's office, whatever that was. Think about that time for a moment. Is everyone appropriately uncomfortable and regretting that they came to church this morning? Now think about how that was dealt with by whoever it was that that caught you. Think about how your parents dealt with that. Think about how the principal dealt with that. Think about it, you know, how your your spouse dealt with that, whatever the case may be. And as you think about how they dealt with it, and maybe it was with anger and and maybe with correction, and, and those things maybe are not inappropriate. But when it came time for the forgiveness to happen, when it came time to say, okay, we're moving on and we're moving forward and we're, we're finding a way forward, was that forgiveness unconditional? Were there conditions put on it? And because we're humans, I'll say often there's conditions put on it, right? I'll forgive you, but you're going to get the cold shoulder from me for a while. I'll forgive you, but you have to do X, Y, and Z before I'm really going to let this go. I'll forgive you, but I'm going to passive-aggressively kind of bring it up from time to time and throw it in your face. I say all that to say our forgiveness that we extend to one another often is not perfect, right? We're, as parents, we, we don't do this perfectly. Our parents didn't do it perfectly with us. Uh, even the, the best of us, we're doing the best that we can, but because we're human, the forgiveness that we offer each other is often not complete. Um, Um, And so because of that, sometimes I think we can struggle with this view of God's forgiveness because when God forgives us, it's actually unconditional and complete. When we receive the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, when we acknowledge what we've done before him, when we ask for his forgiveness, that's the end of it at that point. It's not we have to do this over and over and over again. It's not that God is going to passive aggressively keep bringing it up in our lives. The Bible uses the language of when God forgives us, it's like being cleansed and we're white as snow again. That's the word picture that gets used. Not that you're, oh, you're still kind of dirty and God still has to. It's like when the forgiveness of God comes, it really is complete. And so we're going to look at a story that jumps into that today. And again, we're reflecting on what does this mean for our sin? What does this mean when we see sin in other people and when we're engaging with other people as they are in their sin as well? So we're in Luke chapter 7. So grab your Bibles, your phones, and we're going to start in Luke 7 verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So there's a a story here, and I I mentioned this a bit last week. Sometimes in these Bible stories, a lot of details aren't given. And so because details aren't given, we kind of fill in the gaps a little bit and try to make some sense of it. And that's okay. I don't think we can get away from that as long as we acknowledge that that's what we're doing. We always want to be very clear on what the Bible's very clear on. Where the Bible isn't clear or doesn't tell us, we can speculate a little bit, but we need to acknowledge that we're speculating. And so we will do a bit of that today as we're trying to fill in some of the gaps of this story. But we want to acknowledge that we're doing that as we do it. I mentioned last week as well, when it comes to Jesus and when it comes to these stories that we're looking at, if you're looking for formulas, you're actually not going to find them when you look at the life of Jesus. Jesus doesn't always do the exact same thing every single time. And that can be frustrating because in, like, I like everything nice and orderly. I like everything. I'm a planner. Uh, I like everything very neat. I like my theology really, really neat. And that's annoying sometimes when you walk with Jesus because not everything God does fits very nicely and neatly into what I have orchestrated in my, my understanding. That God sometimes goes beyond my understanding, stretches my understanding, at times changes my understanding, and that's actually a really, really good thing. But if we're looking for just a very, very simple thing that's going to apply to every single situation and every single person all the time, those are actually difficult to find with Jesus. And as we go through this series, we're going to see he doesn't always engage with every sinner in exactly the same way. We looked at this verse last week as well, which is guiding us in this series from John 1.14. We have seen his, Jesus' glory, We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And there's that, that balancing act we have to do of grace and truth. My theory is, is that when it comes to grace and truth, most of us lean to one side or the other. There is the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God. And then there's the truth of God, the holiness of God, the word of God, and everything that goes there. And so some of us naturally just lean a bit more. We're, more, we're very gracious. We're very merciful. We're compassionate. We love people. And sometimes we can be so much that way that we actually end up laying truth aside in the name of loving people. And some of us are very committed to truth and the word of truth and God's truth and God's holiness. And we're so committed to that side of truth that we actually can forget mercy and compassion. Jesus finds a way to do them both together. Jesus finds a way to hold them together. It's actually a little tougher. It's easier just to say, I'm gonna go on one side or the other. But Jesus doesn't allow us to say that, well, sin's no big deal. Or he doesn't allow us to say we're all sinners. So we're just not even gonna talk about sin. He doesn't permit us that. To do that would be to lay aside his truth. But he also doesn't permit us to only talk about sin. He doesn't permit us to condemn people in their sin, to be self-righteous where we're here and other sinners are down there. He doesn't allow us to do that either. He doesn't allow us to ignore sinners or push them away. To do that would be to lay aside his grace. 
And so we're trying to find that sweet spot. How do we hold both his grace and his truth together so that we're not compromising either? And when we do that, we're finding ourselves in the way of Jesus. So let's just take a look at our text. We're going to walk through it this morning and pull some stuff out of it. So we're in a new story, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees, his name is Simon, we find out later, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. You're noticing Jesus is eating out a lot, right? He's going for meals, all these stories that we're looking at. And so there is a Pharisee now. Now the Pharisees, we're going to take some time, uh, we'll take a Sunday just to look at them because they're going to get their own Sunday. Um, But the Pharisees are are a religious group, kind of what we would probably call a denomination today. They were a a Jewish denomination and they had a, a real emphasis on God's word. They were very, very committed to the scripture. And so they were very worshipful. They were devoted to Jehovah. They were very, very committed to the scriptures. And they believed that their role was to call Israel back to the word, back to the word, back to the word, back to the word. And they believed that we're not just supposed to know these words of scripture. We're not just supposed to understand. We're supposed to live them out very purposefully, that the word of God is the standard by which we are evaluating everything. And we're going to take the word of God very, very seriously. And so they were constantly teaching. They were constantly, uh, you know, talking to the, to the people of the nation about the word of God. How do we live this out? They were very, very concerned about how the world, the, the culture around them was corrupting the Jewish faith in their views. And so they were looking for a, a pure form of the Jewish faith that was committed to scripture, that was worshipful. And I say that all to say that the Pharisees sound an awful lot like us, I think. They sound an awful lot like those are values we would hold. Those are values I would hold. Those are the ways that I would like to live out my life. And so where it's very, very easy to make the Pharisees the villains of the Gospels, and they are to a certain extent, right? They were they were out to get Jesus. They were instrumental in his crucifixion. At the same time, it's when it's so easy to kind of point fingers and villainize them and make them the bad guys, that's actually what they did with sinners, and Jesus got mad at them for it. So we're actually a lot like them when we do that, even towards them. Anytime we're elevating ourselves above other people, we are acting like the Pharisees. And a lot of what drove the Pharisees are the things that drive Christians as well. So part of our job with the Pharisees is to say, okay, where am I acting like this? Not just they were bad guys one time 2,000 years ago, but where am I engaging in this way? So there is a Pharisee. The Pharisees were highly skeptical of Jesus because Jesus didn't look the way they thought he he should look. They had the word of God very well established. They had their systematic theologies. They had their doctrine all worked out. And Jesus didn't fit into that. He didn't look the way that they thought the word of God said the Messiah was going to look. And so they were highly skeptical. And yet there's one who's interested enough that he's inviting Jesus over for dinner. He wants to get to know Jesus better. And Jesus goes, Jesus is having meals with anybody. Right, whether you're a religious person who's you know far from God in one way, or whether you're a sinner who's far from God in another way, Jesus is very interested in connecting with people in this way. And so we've seen him at Matthew's house. We've seen him eating uh, um, at a meal with people who are quote unquote sinners. And now there's a religious person who's looking. Jesus is willing to go there as well because that person is also a sinner. And that's someone else who also needs Jesus. And so Jesus goes over and is willing to share in the meal. In the last two weeks, we've looked at Jesus sharing meals with people, and the Pharisees sit outside grumbling, oh, he's going into the house of the sinners. Why is he doing that? He shouldn't be doing that. No one is grumbling about, oh, he's going into the house of the Pharisee. Why is he doing that? We don't see that story happening at all. But as he goes in, 
We've talked a little bit the last couple of weeks about a meal, what a meal meant back then. And so now, uh, you know, we have meals just uh, to have meals, right? You have meals with your friends, you have meals with your neighbors. It's just you're getting together, you're hanging out, and that's all there is to it. There's a little more going on in, in a first century uh, Jewish meal, and it has to do with hospitality and how seriously they took that, where they believed that part of their duty as the people of God was to extend God's hospitality to anyone who comes into their house. And so if you invite someone over for dinner, you are inviting them to be a part of your family. That's how they viewed it. So you're going to come be part of my family for the next few hours. And you're going to have all the blessings of my house. You're going to have all the protection of my house. If you, if you are coming in, wherever you're coming from in life, I'm here to provide for you. I'm going to serve you and wait upon you. I'm going to treat you like a brother or a sister. We're family in this time. That's why it's so scandalous when Jesus is going to a tax collector's house for a meal. And he's hanging out at Zacchaeus' house. And, and they're getting together. is because Jesus is associating with these people in a way that was shocking at the time. Jesus is going and treating these people as if he is their family. He's joining into their family for a little while. A lot of the religious people didn't like that. But Jesus is doing the same thing for the Pharisee. And even though the Pharisees were out to get him, and even though they were far from the Lord in a lot of ways, Jesus knows they need to get to know him better. They need to know who Jesus is. And so when he is invited, Jesus says, yes, I've been hanging out with the sinners. I've been hanging out with the tax collectors. Now I'm going to go and be family with the Pharisees for a while because Jesus is actually after the whole world. He wants all to come to know him. And so he goes and he spends this time at the Pharisee's house. Moving on, verse 37, 38. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So this lady's not invited, right? She is crashing the party. She has not been issued an invitation. We see a little later, the Pharisee is not thrilled, obviously, that she has just walked into his house. But there's a boldness to it that is inspiring, where she says, whatever Jesus has, that's what I need, right? I, I need to go after this. And so there is a lot of speculation as to who this woman is, and we're really not told anything more other than just those, those brief couple of verses in the text. So she lived in the area. She lived a sinful life, and we're not given any more clues beyond that. And people will speculate, well, she was into this or she was into that. We don't know. It's not told to us. But it is noteworthy, obviously. She has a reputation. Simon didn't invite this woman, but he knows who she is. He knows what her reputation is. And so she comes in, and everything about what she's doing is scandalous. Everything that she's doing is scandalous. I mean, she's crashing a party. That's not great, right? Like that's if someone just showed up at your house tonight and said, I'm just, I'm coming in and I don't know you and you don't know me, but I'm going to be a part of this for now on. Like that would be grounds to call the police for most of us, right? I don't know who this person is. So she's crashing the party uninvited. That's already a big deal. She's a woman crashing the party. That is also a big deal at the time. The men sat at the table. The women did not sit with them at the table. And you see in the verse there, they actually reclined at the table. So 
we sit upright, but they kind of had couches that they laid down on, and, and they would kind of eat and chat as they kind of took it easy on these couches. But women didn't recline with the men. The men sat by themselves. That was just the culture at the time. And so she is breaking into a party uninvited. She's breaking into a man's party uninvited. So that is extra scandalous. She is drawing near to the rabbi, to the teacher, which was not done at the time. The, all the rabbis only taught men. And so she's coming to his feet. That wasn't done. And that is scandalous. And then she's touching him. And that's not something you did with a, a person in public, with a per, person that you weren't related to. So she's touching a stranger a strange man, a rabbi, and then she's weeping in the midst of it. Like the party is disrupted at this point, right? There's, there's a lady and she's, she's, everything is, is weird that she's doing. And she's at his feet and she's weeping on his feet. And then she undoes her hair. Scandalous, scandalous. Women covered their hair in public. Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians that a woman's hair is her glory from God. It is, it is this, this beautiful sign of, of God's image in her. And so you would keep it covered up because only your, your husband, your immediate family, was allowed to see that at home. So in public, a woman had a covering on. And she uncovers her hair, undoes her hair, and then uses that hair to, to rub the tears off his feet. Now we know a little later in the story that his feet are not clean, right? Simon's going to get rebuked for that in a few minutes. So the reason you washed your guests' feet when they came is because you're living in a world where you wear sandals and walk on dirt roads in really hot and humid weather all the time. Like, our feet are not the best in the best of circumstances, right? But to be kind of half barefoot in sandals, walking on dirt all day, like your feet are stinky, they're, they're dirty, they're caked. And she's taking her hair, which Scripture says is her glory, and she's rubbing her glory to clean off his feet. And ladies, you think about how much product and money and, and things go into that hair of yours, right? And she's using that hair in order to, to clean the Lord's feet, to do what should have been done that wasn't done. And so she's doing that, and then she's got this perfume, this very expensive perfume. And, you know, you can just clean a feet with water, right? That's perfectly acceptable at the time. She's got this very expensive perfume and pouring the perfume over his feet. And in so doing, she's also, as we see, going so far beyond anything that the host has done. Like everything she's doing is scandalous at the time. Everything she's doing is scandalous. And Jesus is perfectly okay with it. Jesus is perfectly okay with the scandal. He is not alarmed, he is not upset, and he commends her, as we will see. So we don't know where this woman's coming from in life. We don't know everything that's going on. Um, but what we do know, we don't actually even know how she knows Jesus or what she's heard about Jesus, but we know somehow she has received the message that Jesus can forgive sins. She has learned that along the way. She's either heard it in the crowds or she's heard the rumors or she's heard Jesus preach uh, when he was preaching to the, the masses or whatever. But she has come to understand somehow by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ forgives sins and there's something in her that says that is exactly where I need to be. I need to be near the one who can forgive my sins. And, and out of that sense of forgiveness, she is, is all in, right? And, and it's been speculated that the perfume uh, might have cost thousands of dollars, not just a, a few hundred dollars, uh, you know, that we can get at the store, but thousands of dollars that she is now pouring on the feet of Jesus. So everything about this moment is shocking. 
Um, but she knows that she's coming from this sin, and she knows what her past is. She knows that Jesus offers that forgiveness. And out of that understanding and out of that forgiveness, her love and her gratitude shows up in this most beautiful and incredible way. When John the Baptist came, before Jesus came, John the Baptist came to get everybody ready for Jesus. He came to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And one of the things he says in Matthew 3.8 is produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That as you are repenting, and we've talked about that word a lot the last couple of weeks, repentance meaning to turn, to change, to transform, to get off the path you're on and to pick a different path, to move away from the sin that damages us and pick the pure way of God because it's better for us. Repentance to change directions, to change track, produce fruit in keeping with that, that if we are changing direction, if we are picking another way, that there will be fruit that will show up in in different ways in our lives. There will be action that goes with it. There will be worship that goes with it. There will be gratitude that goes with it as we truly turn to a better way. And as this woman comes just with tears of gratitude and and just bringing herself to the most humble place, not just of a servant, but but taking the glory of her hair and, and just doing everything she can to honor the Lord and clean up his feet and pouring this incredibly expensive perfume over his feet as an act of worship, ultimately as a way of glorifying him and and honoring him and thanking him. The question I was challenged with this week and I will challenge you with is when was the last time you were that grateful to Jesus? When was the last time you wept with gratitude? We're not all criers, but, but if not weeping, when was the last time you were that grateful for what he's done for you? When was the last time you were that grateful? When was the last time your worship cost you something? Like she was willing to put her reputation on the line. Like she was willing to spend a lot of money in order to worship Jesus in that way. When was the last time your worship caused you to sacrifice something for him? When was the last time you were that grateful? The Pharisees aren't acting this way because they don't think they have any sins that need forgiving. Right? They have not tasted of that. That's part of what Jesus tells the parable in the story, which we'll get to in a second. That they are not thinking they need this. And so, yeah, the sinful woman maybe uh, needs to be this repentant, but they miss it because they think that they, they are doing okay. And we can only become like the Pharisees. We can only look down on other sinners. We can only put ourselves up here and others down here when we have truly forgotten our own sin. When we have forgotten that we too are sinners in need of saving. We too have received of the grace of God. And there just seems to be something when we've walked with the Lord for a while, we do kind of forget. Intellectually we understand, theologically we understand, but we lose some of this tenderness. And as she comes, she is met with the beautiful kindness of Jesus Christ. Right? He knows her sin. He knows where she's coming from. And he's not meeting her with rebuke. And he's not meeting her with anger. And he's not meeting her with wrath. He's meeting her with kindness and mercy. Because she's coming to him looking for kindness and looking for mercy. And we need to be introducing people to the kindness of Jesus Christ as much as we are introducing them to other parts of who he is as well. When the Pharisee, verse 39, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he's not saying this out loud, but in his, in his head, he's thinking, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So we're getting more clues to the story as the story unfolds, that Simon the Pharisee, he's not sure if Jesus 
Jesus is a prophet or not. He's not sure if Jesus is the Messiah. Perhaps he has invited him to dinner to check him out. Let's see if this man really is a prophet. Let's see if this man really comes from God. But he's determined at this point that he can't be a prophet because if he were a prophet, he wouldn't be letting this woman touch him. Right, This woman who will come and contaminate him. This woman who will come in her sinfulness. If he really were a prophet, he would be rebuking her. Right, That's what the prophets often did in the Old Testament. He would be calling her out on her sin. He would be exposing it, calling her back to faithfulness. That's what a prophet would do. And so the Simon the Pharisee is, is thinking he's figuring this all out. And, and the Jews, we talked about this the last couple of weeks, had a very clear picture of cleanness and uncleanness. And if you associated with a sinner, their uncleanness would get on you, right? They, they were very concerned about that. And so that's why we would want to stay separate from sinners. And we wouldn't want to eat with sinners. And we wouldn't want to do any of that. And Jesus isn't concerned about any of that. Because he knows greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. It's not about what's going to get stuck on me if I hang out with a sinner. It's about what's in me that's going to get into them. Sometimes we Christians are very, very, very fearful of, of the world coming in and taking over and contaminating. We are warned against that as scripture. But what about the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and he wants to get out into the world, right? Less concern maybe about, about being corrupted and more concern about what can we share with them and what can we pass on to them. And, and there's wisdom to that. I think if you're, you know, an, an alcoholic, then you probably shouldn't be hanging out with people who are drinking, right? Like there's wisdom to it for sure. But to think that God in us is greater than anything in this world. Jesus wasn't worried about being contaminated by the sinners. He wasn't concerned about that in any way. And so Simon the Pharisee is moving into judgment, and we've come back to this verse as well from Matthew chapter 7. Just a warning for all of us. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So there's a warning here about the understanding, again, we all have stuff in our eyes that need to come out, and it's really easy to focus all my attention on your stuff and completely ignore my own. Jesus says, no, you work on yourself. If you're going to get mad at sin, you can get mad at sin, but make sure you're starting with your own sin because we're very good at getting mad at other people's sin and giving ourselves a pass because, hey, we're all sinners and we're working on it. And as long as we're working on it, uh, right? Like we can do that very easily. Now, someone asked me this week and it was a good question. They said, so are you saying we can never call anything else sin because we have our own stuff that we're dealing with. Like, are we just never to talk about it? Are we supposed to let things slide? Because, like, do I need to wait until I'm, I'm all cleaned up before I can say to someone else, hey, there's something here I'm concerned of? And the answer, great question. The answer is no, of course. You'll, we'll never in this life fully be cleaned. We'll never fully get all the sin out of our lives. I think such a key in this verse is the first part. With the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Like, how are we doing this, right? I think we do have a biblical call. If we see sin in each other's lives, we are supposed to, to point it out. And we are supposed to call sin, sin, as Jesus did. And we're supposed to call people away from it, as Jesus did. So if we're going to be Christ-like, that's going to be part of it. The question is, how are you doing it? To me, this is a passage about compassion, just understanding that if I see sin in you that's different than mine, I might not understand why you're doing that or why you're struggling with that, but I got my own stuff. 
And so even if I say, hey, that behavior is not good, let's work on getting out of it, it's going to happen as I'm coming from that place of compassion and humility because I got other stuff in my eye, even if it's not the same as yours. And you know what? Together we're going to move forward, and together we're going to work on this because if I'm judging, if the same way that I judge is going to bring judgment on me, the measure that I use, it's going to be measured back, then if I want God's mercy and grace, then I'm going to walk in God's mercy and grace. doesn't mean we won't call sin sin, but we're going to do it in mercy and grace because that's the measure I want measured back onto me, right? Judgment without mercy, Scripture says, will be shown to anyone who is not merciful. So we can certainly say, hey, I think that's sin. Let's work on that, but it's going to come from a place of compassion and mercy. Simon the Pharisee isn't doing that. He's condemning this woman. Jesus shouldn't even be letting this woman near him because she's so sinful. He's putting himself up here, and he's putting her down there. We are very, very, very good at that as Christians. And the Pharisee misses the point, really, which is that Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. We looked at that verse last week. I've come into this world to save sinners, to seek and to save that which is lost. And so no one is turned away who is coming to Jesus, who's looking for grace, who's looking for mercy, who's looking for forgiveness. He is not kicking out anybody who's coming to him and saying, I need the mercy of God. Everybody who does that is invited. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the unconditional forgiveness of God. For anyone who would come looking for it is that there's no strings attached it's your sins are forgiven because you've come to me looking for that forgiveness verse 40 to 43 jesus answers simon so remember simon didn't say anything out loud simon says it in his head to himself this woman is a sinner and if jesus really were a prophet he wouldn't be letting her touch him so jesus answers him simon i have something to tell you tell me teacher he said Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. I love this part of the story because Simon's sitting there saying, this man's not a prophet. He doesn't hear from God. And then Jesus reads his mind and tells him exactly where he's at, proving that he is, in fact, a prophet. That is one of the things that Jesus is. And so Jesus proves himself a prophet, tells a little mini parable in here about money. The amount of money we're talking about here, the 500 denarii the, to 50 denarii, um, the smaller amount is probably worth around $7,000 today. The larger amount would be about $70,000. And so that's the amount of money we're talking about in the, the currency of that time. And Jesus is using it as a picture. The woman is the, the larger debt, obviously. Simon the Pharisee is the smaller debt. What Simon has missed entirely is that he too owes a debt to the Lord. He too is a sinner. He too needs it canceled out. And the beauty of the grace of God is, whether it's a big debt or a small debt, the same forgiveness of debt is offered to both. And whether you've grown up in church and you, you've never really had too much wildness in your life, you didn't really have the prodigal years, you've just walked faithfully with the Lord and you're more of a, a 50 denarii type of person, or whether you've come from the craziest life of sin and debauchery, it doesn't matter. The same grace is offered to everybody. Everybody has the opportunity to have it wiped clean. Everybody has the opportunity to have it wiped and made white as snow. 
That is the unconditional forgiveness offered in Jesus to anyone who would come to him and anyone who would ask for it. And so, again, Simon has missed it. He doesn't consider that he needs forgiveness, right? I'm faithful. I follow the word. I do all the things that I'm supposed to do. This woman is a sinful woman, so maybe she needs the forgiveness. Jesus tells the story, no, you both need it. We all need it. Scripture says we have all sinned and fallen short of God's standard, every single one of us. And so there is the same grace Offered to everybody. Jesus finishes off verse 44 to 47. He turned towards the woman. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? Of course, everybody's seen. It's scandalous in the middle of the dinner party. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So it's not that she is forgiven because she's done these things. Jesus is saying she has received that forgiveness and out of that forgiveness, she is acting in these loving ways. It's her gratitude that is motivating all this stuff. She knows something. Somehow that she has forgiven, she has been forgiven her sins. And so the Pharisees, like they prided themselves on being excellent rule followers. Like they really put a value on what does God's word say? And then what do the commentary say that explain what it means? And how do we live this out in real life? And they were so committed. Jesus would commend them for that, actually. Like you're so meticulous in how you commit yourself to God's word. He would commend them for that and then also rebuke them for missing some other things. But he would say, great. Like the Pharisees, the story Jesus ties it into is that they would tithe even on the spices that they encountered. So they would, you know, they would get some, some cumin or something and they'd measure out a tenth of it and a tenth of it would go to the Lord. And Jesus said, like, that's how meticulous you are in wanting to please God by obeying his word. He says, that's good. That's a good thing. That devotion to God's word is a good thing. And you've missed other things, even as you've been so committed to that. And so when Jesus is rebuking Simon in this moment, it's not actually rebuking him on the grounds of scripture. Simon has not broken any scriptural rules. He's broken some hospitality rules. And again, we don't know why or how. So this, this part's just me speculating, just so we're crystal clear. But I suspect that Simon doesn't treat Jesus the way you're supposed to treat a guest because he was probably a bit nervous about being seen as treating Jesus like one of the family. That if he did everything for Jesus that you're supposed to in the culture of that time, it would look like an endorsement. It would look like this guy's, uh, I'm on board with him and I'm inviting him in. Again, that's just my speculation, but I, I think it's a reasonable one. And so Simon is, is not doing any of the things he's supposed to be doing just as a host, right? You're supposed to wash their feet. Everyone is coming in with stinky feet. Everyone's coming in with dirty feet. And that's weird because then you got to recline on these couches and then you're getting dirt all over the couches and it's just not nice. It's not comfortable. Then you got to look at everybody else's smelly feet around the table. So it's just, that's what's done. If you come in as just a basic courtesy, we're going to wash your feet and have your feet washed. And as a basic just show of, of, of similar respect to one another, we're going to greet each other with a kiss because that's what they did at the time. Just a brief peck on the lips. That was what they did. And that was just a, a common thing like we would do a handshake today. 
and they would come in, and then there would be usually some oil just to kind of, it was just a way to kind of smell nice again. You're kind of smelly, and the oil was used to kind of clean the sweat off your face, and they would anoint your hair with it. So you would just kind of smell and feel fresh as you came to the meal together. My feet are clean, my face is clean, my hair smells good, and I'm just kind of relaxed. I've been greeted with a kiss as I've come in. I've been welcomed in. Simon doesn't do any of those things. So, I mean, if you can imagine going to someone's house for dinner and they just, you know, you go to shake their hand and they just walk past you in front of everybody and then, you know, they they seat you not with the table, they seat you somewhere else. Like, that's the kind of thing that's going on here. There are just common, basic, sort of human decency rules and Simon is breaking all of them. And so Jesus is rebuking him, not for violating God's word. Like he's not, there's no scripture that he's breaking. His rebuke to Simon isn't you've broken the scripture. His rebuke to Simon is you haven't treated me the way you should treat a person. That's the rebuke. There's just basic common courtesy. There's just basic human decency. And you have not treated me with that basic human decency. You have not treated me the way a human being should be treated. Just because they're a human being. You've, you've blown that. And, and whether it was because he was afraid of what people would think of him, again, we don't know that part. I, I'm guessing that that's part of it. But his, his rebuke for Simon was not about, here's all the scriptures that you broke and therefore you sinned. He's saying, Simon, you sinned against me by not treating me the way you would treat anybody else. You sinned against me by not treating me like a human being. And so there's an important warning here, I think, for us. That our devotion to scripture, which is crucial, and our devotion to living out God's word, which is crucial, our devotion to walking in the way of Jesus, which is crucial, does not allow us to lay aside the basic human decency that we show to other people, sinners or not. We don't get to lay aside hospitality. We don't get to lay aside treating someone like a person. We're not allowed to do that. Jesus corrects him in front of everybody, not for breaking God's word, but for not treating him as a human being. And in that vacuum of Jesus not being treated the way he should have been treated, not because he's Lord, but just because he's a person, just because he's a guest in the house, this woman comes in and does everything and does it so much more extreme, right? So where there's no water and no cleaning of the feet, she does that with her tears and with her hair. And where there's no oil, she brings this incredibly expensive perfume. And where there is no kiss of greeting, she is kissing his feet and honoring him, not just as a guest, but honoring him as Lord, honoring him as the one who forgave all her sins, showing her love towards him in that way. Jesus turns in the last couple of verses, verse 48. He says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Now she knows that already. That's why she's doing everything that she's doing. But he says in front of everybody, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus says it. That's a scandalous statement to say. We know it's not because we know who Jesus is, but they're still trying to figure that out. And so here's a man who is proclaiming to this woman who everybody knows has this reputation, your sins are forgiven. And they begin to grumble and say, well, who, who's this? Who, who forgives sins like this? And the answer is God. God forgives sins. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is God in the flesh. So he has the authority to forgive those sins. And so Jesus is using this as a teaching moment for the whole room of who he is, that yes, he does have the authority to forgive sins. Yes, he does have the ability to offer that grace because he's not just a prophet and he's not just a rabbi. He is so much more than that. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done here today. 
In the book of Galatians, Paul is talking about people kind of wrestling with the law and obeying the law and, and how far do we go into the law and where are we set free to obey Jesus and, and what does that all look like? And they were arguing about circumcision. Do we get circumcised? Do we not get circumcised? And, and what does that look like? And the Holy Spirit through Paul would say, circumcision, circumcision, not circumcision, whichever road you try to go down, it doesn't really matter. In Galatians 5, 6, says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. When it comes to our devotion to the Lord, that is what God is looking for, that your faith and devotion to him, which is real, and, and obedience is real, and God's word is real, we're not putting aside any of that. But what counts is that faith expressing itself through love. That love is the fullness of God's law. That Jesus would say, we can actually sum up the whole thing in this. Love God and love others. That's the whole law, completely wrapped up. And it's not that God's law doesn't matter. It's just saying when you love perfectly, you do all the things in the law, right? You fulfill that obedience. You treat people the way they should be treated. You don't harm anybody because love does no harm to its neighbor. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Out of that comes obedience, comes devotion, comes our, our reverence for the word and everything there. But that faith, that trust we have in God, that forgiveness that we've received, it's meant to show up in action somehow. It's meant to show up in a changed life. It's meant to show up in repentance and a change of direction. It's meant to show up in welcoming someone to the table. It's meant to, to show up in expressing that love in practical ways and, and probably limitless ways. What counts is faith expressing itself through love. Jesus says to the woman, go in peace. That's how it wraps up. And I bet she did go in peace that day. She was not rebuked for breaking all the, the cultural rules. She was not rebuked for being scandalous, scandalous in the moment. She was not rebuked for interrupting the party or undoing her hair or all of those things. She is blessed by Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And that is the peace that comes when we know we are forgiven. That same grace that was offered to her is offered to us. And if you've walked with Jesus for a while, you know that already. You know that truth and understand that truth. That doesn't mean you don't still need to re-receive it over and over again to, to re-confess our sins and to, to acknowledge where we screw up in new ways and to get the grace of God released into our life again. We need to remember that. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, that is the beauty of the promise of what he offers to you today. That it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. That the grace of God is available to anyone who would come to Jesus and ask for it. To anyone who would say, I have sinned and I need to, to turn this around and the grace of God is there wiped out if you want it of anything you've ever done that is there for you and if you want to talk about that you can talk to me or any of our prayer people afterwards as we get ready to wrap up in a few minutes here at Meadowbrook we are here to help people take their next steps with Jesus we focus on that three ways upward inward and outward and we are always asking the question what are your next steps then so from here as we are looking to apply the word where do we go from here and so upward I challenged you with this already in your own walk with the Lord in your own uh, just journey with him and where you're at with him when was the last time you were really 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 truly grateful like the woman of this story? When was the last time you teared up? When was the last time you, you sacrificially worshipped? When was the last time you did anything like that? And if you haven't in a while, and, and that might be many of us, because we, we can just kind of get so used to it, I would suggest that we get to that place when we just forget what he's done for us. When we forget the cross, 
when we, and not literally forget, of course, but when we lay it aside, when we forget what our sin was, when we forget how big it was, when we forget the grace that has been extended to us. So take some time this week to meditate on that. Take some time to reflect on what's been forgiven in you. Take some time to reflect on the cross. Take some time to reflect on the life that was laid down for your sake as we do that and and take our next steps upwardly in that way. Taking our next steps inwardly, again, how's your own eyeball doing? What planks are in there? And it's not that you can't notice stuff in other people's eyes, but we make sure we're working on our own stuff. And I can only get self-righteous in my, my view of other sinners if I forget my own sin or I pretend my own sin isn't there or I give myself a pass on my own sin. So we want to be very, very honest and truthful about what we see in ourselves. Sometimes we need help from other people to understand that and let them speak into it and help us see what's there. But are we paying attention to that inwardly? Outwardly, I'll say this, I've said this the last couple of weeks, who needs a meal in your life? Who is there that either doesn't know Jesus or, or maybe does, but they've wandered or, or maybe they, they know him, but they've disconnected from the, the family of faith or, or whatever? Who needs a meal? Who needs a connection? Who needs to be invited in to the family again? Who needs to be loved in that way and sacrificed for in that way? Stand with me, please, as we get ready to close. We want to remember what was done for us. We want to remember the grace of God this morning. And so we're going to worship as we get ready to close today and just refresh and remind ourselves of this truth yet again.